to Disrupt TV. I'm Ray Wong. I'm one of the co-founders of Disrupt TV, and I'm here today with my special guest, Liz Miller. Um, this is our fourth anniversary show, and Bala is not here. I, That's okay. I, I think I'm on all of the like the landmark shows. I was on the last show of last year, co-hosting for Vala, and now I'm on the fourth anniversary show. I'm beginning to feel like this could be a thing with Vala and myself. We're just gonna. It is. We are asking for Vala. We are asking for Vala. No, no, this we is are. Where we reveal that actually Vala has just really been a computer simulation for the last <laughs> four years. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Don't give away the secret. Don't give it away. We've had 383 <laughs> unique guests. That would mean Vala would not be one of those. So anyways, <laughs> we're here to celebrate our fourth anniversary. Um, of course, you can catch us on Vimeo, YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes, and even on FM AM radios, coast to coast. So this week's show, who's our special guest? We've got Pablo Brewer, Executive Cybersecurity Leader, Futurist Change Agent. You can follow him at N-G-R-E-E -E underscore H, I think it's a zero, bit. He's currently the Military Director of U.S. Special Ops Command, Donovan Group, and Senior Military Advisor and Innovation Officer at SoftWorks. He served at the National Security Agency, NSA, U.S. Cyber Command, as well as being the director of C4 at U.S. Naval Forces Central Command. He is DOD Cyber Cup and DEF CON Black Badge winner and has been adjunct faculty at the National University, California State University, Monterey Bay, and a visiting scientist at Carnegie Mellon for CERT SEI. Pablo has taught classes for various user government agencies and industry on topics from malware reverse engineering and exploit development to cyber policy and authorities. He's got degrees in comp sci course and a PhD candidate in information science. And we also have Dr. David Bray in his new role as the Atlantic Council. He's actually incubating new global center and senior fellow in the Institute for Human Machine Cognition. Dr. David Bray needs no introduction, but we're gonna give him a long one anyways. Uh, he's been serving a variety of leadership roles in turbulent environments, including bioterrorism preparedness and response from 2000 to 2005. He was on the ground in Afghanistan in 2009, serving as the nonpartisan executive director for Bipartisan National Commission on R&D, providing leadership as a nonpartisan federal agency senior executive. He's also been the former CIO of the FCC, and today he is um, one of the fellows um, incubating a new global center within the Atlantic Council. So a lot going on with him, but he's also been part of the executive director from 2017 to 2020 for the People-Centered Internet Coalition, chaired by Internet co-originator Vince Cerf, focusing on providing support and expertise for community-focused projects that measurably improve people's lives. He's also a Marshall Memorial Fellow, traveled to Europe in 2018. He's also done some work in the U.S. Navy and Marines on improving organizational adaptability, and he's also been working with the U.S. Special Operations Command J5 Directorate on the challenge of countering misinformation and disinformation online. There's so much going on here with Dr. David Bray. He's also an Eisenhower Fellow, and actually, he's also a public health major. So we'll get to all that and more, but more importantly, let's start with the hot topics that we got this week. Liz, what do we have? What are we kicking off with? You know, we're, we're going to talk about some disinformation, misinformation. And, and I think let's, I want to start with maybe a foundational question for you guys, because I think that when we start to talk about misinformation and the age of misinformation, and we start to throw around the word, a lot of times some people don't know what it means, right? So what's the difference? What's the difference between countering, say, misinformation and disinformation? You know, when we're talking 2020 versus 2015, what are we talking about, quite literally? Alba, you want to jump on that one or do you want me to? 
I'll, t I'll take a first quick swing at it. So what we're talking about here is information that's put out with an intent to deceive. Uh, we all make simple mistakes. Sometimes we, we must correct those things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about selectively choosing the facts that we put out or the context in which we put it out with an intent to deceive its intended uh, as the real purpose. Really, like what virus? What virus? Nothing's going on. Yeah, so uh, you, one of the examples I always use is, uh, you know, the, Russia didn't invade a country, they liberated ethnic Russians. <laughs> uh, okay, it's, it's a matter of perspective, but I would say most people agree on what really happened there. <laughs> I don't know I what think, you're talking about. <laughs> uh, Pablo's really hitting on the key too, is oftentimes misinformation and disinformation, it's not like it's completely inaccurate. It's usually taking 90, 95% of things and then just putting them out of context. And we've seen this happen most recently twice with two videos in which uh, one was of the Speaker of the House, the other one was for a presidential candidate. Both those videos were accurate footage. It's just in one case, it was slowed down to try and make the person look drunk. In the other case, it was actually selectively edited to make uh, statements that the person had said make them look unflattering. And so I think it's really oftentimes you have to recognize that misinformation, disinformation, it's not that it's completely untrue, it's just it's things out of context with the goal of making you reach the wrong conclusions. It's like truth adjacent. Truth, well, or just recognizing that again, I mean, uh, and, and this is where people say they don't need to worry about their, you know, like when people say I don't need to worry about hiding anything, it's like, well, yes, but recognize what happens when someone takes something you did and takes it out of context to make it look unflattering or make right. it look like you've done something you haven't done. I wasn't here. I wasn't here. I wasn't here. Place different, right? <laughs> I really wasn't here. I don't want to take the on hand of the person behind you, Ray. Right. We'll just have it go like this, right? <laughs> Oh man, but this is happening all the time, right? I mean, this level of misinformation, disinformation, it's being used in political campaigns, it's being used in, you know, um, you're seeing it happen across governments around the world, but it's also happening in advertising in some weird way, so. Oh, I mean, I mean, as Pablo is fond of saying, he's pretty sure that that sport drink is not gonna automatically make him a better mountain climber. And so in some respects, to a degree, political rhetoric advertisement has always had a little bit of things out of context. What's the uh, difference between something aspirational and misleading? Well, so, so I guess it's worth noting that this is not a new phenomenon. It's just mm -hmm. come back. Um, in the 1890s, we had the trouble of yellow journalism, which was essentially you know, emotional-laden headlines that were fairly fact-less. And, and what was happening at the time is people needed to sell newspapers. And so they were much more like pitching the emotions pitching the, almost at the time, it probably wouldn't exist, but the, 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 the Jerry Brockheimer equivalent of what was the, the news as opposed to the actual news. One might say what's happened with the internet is the internet has also killed newspaper subscriptions. And so now when people are now motivated to show a growth and profit in the news industry, don't be surprised if people are paying to ad clicks and ad clicks are much more about emotional sensationalistic headlines as opposed to what actually is the reality on the ground. And, and these emotion-based cues, they're also ending up being a bit of cover for additional bad actions, right? It's, it's not unusual to see folks using um, kind of the emotional arc of the time for misinformation to start sending out, you know, whether it is phishing, whether it is, you know, just outright trying to get people to click on a malware link. There's, there's a lot of things that are going on here. It seems like 
there's a momentum building with all of this. It, it almost like right time, wrong place kind of feeling. So how is this, is the, are you seeing this accelerate? Like we're seeing it, how it's happening over time, but where are we starting to see it go from here? Pablo, yeah, I think, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think uh, you're definitely going to see it accelerate. So uh, Ray mentioned about advertising. Um, so certainly advertising, you know, if you watch a Coca-Cola commercial, there's a certain feeling that it's meant to impose, but it, they don't lie to you. Right? They, they can't tell you that it, it's going to cure cancer like they did. Like they used to. <laughs> well, um, there were, there were more potent ingredients in there before, right? <laughs> right. I mean, right. Today, it's a little, a little arsenic down. thing, whatever. <laughs> cocaine, a little fine. arsenic, a little cocaine, you know, but you know, it's so, a little but, watered down, you know. I, I don't know. What but but in, invariably, um, as David pointed out, a, a lot of these stories are meant to hit an emotional cue and get you to react instantly before your higher order brain functions react and go, hmm, maybe there's a little bit more to this. Uh, so uh, typically, uh, if you see it on an internet page, it's called clickbait. Right. It's, it's there to, you know, enrage you so that you'll click and, and follow the link. Uh, the other thing that's different is, it, you know, it used to be the case that, that uh, there were only so many channels and the channel had to approve your advertisement. And if it was something really bad, the FCC might go, no, you can't put that on. The, the problem with, with social media and with the Internet is there's no such gatekeeper function. And so anybody can really put up anything on there. And on top of that, the, the response rating how well your message is getting across is almost instantaneous because you get those likes and those retweets yeah. and those click links. And so the ability to now see how effective your message is with different demographics, tweak that message and put out a new version happens at internet speed. And that was something that did not happen before. Yeah, and I, I think what Pablo hit is so key is that the democratization of the fact that anyone can now both receive and communicate messages, while that's in some respects a good thing, um, it does introduce these instabilities in the system, and it's creating what I call uh, and, and and I share. I, I think we're in an era of ragetainment, uh, in which mm. we've discovered that the number one way to make something go viral is to make one group of people angry and the other group of people angry in response. Uh, the number two way to make something go viral, incidentally, is to make one group fearful and the other group fearful in response to that. So uh, given that this is sort of where we're just discovering human nature, responds to things that are angry and fearful, again, before our higher, higher parts of our brain kick in and say, well, wait, maybe there's more to that story or maybe someone's trying to hijack my thinking. Um, we've got to figure out, you know, maybe we need a completely new way that sort of says, pause. If you're feeling your emotions go up, your blood pressure go up, pause and then come back to it and say, why, 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 why might somebody be trying to activate my anger or my fear responses? But, but, but how do, how do like, how do like authoritarian governments like, you know, control? I mean, they're, they're basically censoring all the time, right? They're, they're fighting this, they're fighting back on their own. It's automated. It's actually even worse. Maybe there's only one channel, but they only let, they, they kind of ignore the other ones. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Ray, that in some respects, actually, autocracies might be better poised to deal with the challenges of misinformation than more mm -hmm. open societies, because they choose their version of the truth. And if you don't like it, you have a choice of either being imprisoned and or killed. Uh, I'm not saying I'm for autocracies, clearly. But I raise that because we have some really thorny questions to ask about open societies, which is, you know, if we take down something or if we remove it from the internet, then we've legitimized censorship. And do we want that? But at the same time, if we leave it up, 
the research shows nobody remembers the not true part. So if you say X is not true or you even label it, this video is suspicious, unfortunately, while consciously we may say, yeah, I see that, it still had the effect of it's activated our confirmation biases and it made us think a certain way and so the it's damage there. is already done. So, so this is gonna be hard. It's gonna be really hard for open societies and it raises the big question, which is, are we discovering that our brains aren't ready for the technologies we're unleashing? And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Now this is before implants. This is before yeah. implants. Think about uh, that. Well, so I think at a minimum, a great story, David. When your confirmation bias kicks in, like right. how do I mean? How do you know when your confirmation bias is present? I, I read a great story last night, actually, David. I don't sure if you saw it. It's, it was kind of outlining Estonia's program to combat misinformation. Uh, and especially in, you know, with, with Russia's kind of push towards that specific to Estonia. And one of the things that jumped out at me, and it made me actually think of you guys, um, actually the both of you specifically, um, one of the things that jumped out was this incredible program that they have built that has involved quite literally everyone in their community. Uh, they, this isn't just, you know, like cyber command trying to take over or let's clamp down on information. They have gone out and they have enlisted teachers. Uh, they've enlisted, uh, you know, just someone down the block, like your grandmother to be the person that when misinformation pops up, when people start to circulate that, when they have that emotional response, like you said, David, that there is someone activated in the room that says, hang on, wait a minute. And it may be that Estonia has a smaller community. They're, they're, they're able to do it. Can we replicate that, you know, at the scale of, of the U.S.? But it struck me as kind of something that you had mentioned, David, at CCE 2019 in, in Half Moon Bay, that we have to start building these communities where we are saying, hey, stop, let's think about it. Let's, let's ask the question. Um, let's, how do we build that network effect of almost like a CRM for the truth? Right. Um, so how do we start unraveling this? How do we, you know, we, we kind of see how we got there, but how do we start to tackle some of these things other than, you know, even just even asking a question, you know, it's, it's, it, it seems like a really hard place to start. Pablo, do you want to jump on that hand grenade or me? Oh. <laughs> uh, Take one for the team. Take one for the team. And you can say how I, how I got it all wrong. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, there, there's a couple of things that I think could be done. Um, one of the things that's been very effective in combating misinformation is something we've been doing in TV for a few years now, which is in, in television, they call it a tape delay to make sure that before something goes out, do we really want this thing to go out? Uh, and, and one of the ways in which misinformation is really effective is virality. And so if we can slow the rate at which it propagates, uh, we can really give it a second look or a third look and, and decide, hey, is this really uh, something that's true or is it malicious? Uh, was it a simple mistake or was there uh, bad intent there? So yeah. I, I use social media just like everybody else uses social media. I, I don't think I've ever sent out a tweet or a Facebook message that had to go out right now. It, it, it hasn't happened. If you find out, uh, you know, half an hour from now that I just had a baby, then you that, that's it. And that's oh my a, God, man, that's amazing. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. I, I, I did not have a baby. That's misinformation. Uh, my, my wife had someone, but that was, that was some years Don't ago. Don't send gifts today. We're good. <laughs> well, well, no, but this is one. This is a real one, right? I mean, look, I mean, I, I was reaching somewhere. I think I can't remember what source it was. I mean, the World Health Organization is trying to fight um, besides the coronavirus, 
an informatic and like an infodemic. I mean, that's, that's at least that's what they're calling. They're, it's infodemic, right? I and mean, basically, people are like putting up rumors about this whole Wuhan virus on a lot of different things, right? Well, so how do you fight that? Well, right? we've and, had, and, and we've had a couple of incidents here in the in the last month, actually. So the the first one that jumped out was when the U.S. conducted the attack on General Soleimani from Iran. Uh, Within about six hours, uh, misinformation campaign on memes targeting 18 to 25 year olds came out saying that a draft was gonna be instituted, we were going to war, and if you'd accepted a federal Pell Grant for education that you were gonna be on the short list to be drafted. Yikes. Uh, and it spread so quickly that the Selective Service and the United States Army both put out messaging saying, no, 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 that's wrong via their official social media channels. Uh, that was one. The other one that came up was uh, just recently with the Iowa caucuses with the, uh, with the miscount. And that was within, within a couple of hours that, no, 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 it wasn't a mistaken programming. Uh, it was a hack perpetrated by the DNC deep state because they were unhappy that their mainstream candidate wasn't the one that won. Uh, and then, of course, these things are preposterous, but if you've already got that bias to believe that sort of thing, you're going to see it and you're going to afford it. And if you've got a bias to think it's absolutely ridiculous because you're emotionally invested uh, and you're a diehard DNC fan, you're going to forward it and say, can you believe this nonsense that's going out? But either way, the message propagates. forwarded, yeah. And then I think it, what you hit the nail on the head is, 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 unfortunately, these things are getting shorter and shorter time windows before they start propagating. I mean, the sad statistic was about four years ago, um, after a school shooting or, or some violence at a school, you might see two or three conspiracy theories, fake news that might present itself um, about 12 to 24 hours afterwards. Now, do you guys worry? Do, do you guys worry that there's an AI bot like that's creating these, and then on the other end, there's another AI bot fighting these, right? And the cycles even get even faster. Well, so that's just it. It's the red it's button. Much easier to propagate, Ray, than it is spread. And so we do. We are seeing. I mean, we're now seeing literally after a school shooting. Unfortunately, you're seeing within the first hour or two, you're seeing at least ten or more different conspiracy theories that are completely erroneous occur. Um, and so there are there are a combination of humans in the loop plus bots that are there to spread misinformation. The challenge, though, is it's not a, it's it's not a field that favors the defenders because the moment you're coming out and trying to say X is not true, you're actually repeating the meme. You're repeating the the, the conspiracy theory, and so so you're better with a look squirrel campaign. <laughs> well, I think it's actually just letting people know this is happening, and actually, as Liz was commenting, I mean. Estonia is doing a good example, so is Latvia and others, where they're trying to engage the local communities. I think the United States has a challenge of we're 330 million people spread across a very large geographical landmass. Can we do the same thing as Latvia and Estonia? Not certain. Um, but at a minimum, we've got to start having more local ties that people can go to. Um, but I do ask people, I like to ask people to raise their hands and say, how many of you know more people in your local neighborhood than you do online? Well, hey, Iowa caucuses don't scale anyways. We understand that. Hey, so authenticity versus deep fakes then. What, what's going on though? Like how do we know when something is real, right? We're blurring a line between reality and fiction, right? I mean, this causes riots, it incites violence. Um, you know, well, both Pablo and I came from the field of intelligence and how does the field of intelligence knows anything so well? You, you triangulate and then you give it a probability score. I mean, you never know <laughs> if it's true. 
but you at least try to get as many different approaches on it. And if you get enough things that are beginning to converge, then you're more likely to believe it. If you have a single source, that may or may not be the case. So. Is there, you know, I think that with, with deep fakes too, there, there comes the issue of um, a lot of times, horrible, negative. I mean, we even saw one, David, you showed a great example of the, you know, the, here's the actress, here's not the actress. Like here's the actress in the post Oscar speech. This is not the actress in the post actor, you know, in that post speech. There are times, and I think when we start to talk about that malicious intent behind that, really bad. But I think from the technology side, there are also some amazing things that are being done with the technology. And I think the, it's that weight of that balance when we start talking about ethics. Um, so where, you know, what are some things that you guys are thinking about as this conversation continues to ramp up and speed up around AI ethics? Like, are we going to get to a place where everyone's going to be, you know, able to live with where we land, right? I, I can't unsee any of that now, right? I can't, I can't unsee it. Looks is it like a, a blueberry muffin? muffin in or is the it corner. a chihuahua? You tell me. I can't unsee it. But, you know, I, I think that how do we, how do we get to a point where the conversation becomes really fruitful and where we start to move things forward versus a lot of times I, I feel like we're in these kind of fits and starts. Like we, we have a great conversation. Everyone gets together. Everyone's on the same page. And then everyone's like, but then that video was funny. So like we all of a sudden backpedal and we, we backtrack. Where are we? Will we get there? And, and what do you guys think is going to be that final push that kind of pushes us over to some place where we all kind of start to agree on a start point? Oops. More grenades. So, Over you, David. All right, I'll go first. I'll jump on this grenade. I would say it, it's things are going to get worse before they get better. The tipping mm -hmm. point will be when people actually recognize this is having damaging economic effects to their local communities. Uh, until then, it's, it's, it's the, the challenging thing is everybody's aware of the issue, but um, both sides of the political aisle think it's more impacting them, hurting them than the other side. They don't realize it's a common problem. Uh, countries as well, that countries around the world are being affected by this. Really, the turnaround point will be eventually when we realize, wait, this is having negative economic impacts, both globally and to our local communities. Now, yeah. where do you start? Um, it really has to be a conversation about the future of data. Uh, because like it or no, we're already at 47 billion network devices on the planet relative to 7.6 billion people, which means conservatively in two years, we're going to probably have 10 network devices for every one person on the planet. We're probably also going to be producing more data on the planet by 2022. We're probably going to be about 150 zettabytes, 150 billion terabytes of data. We're going to be producing more data than all conversations we've ever had as species times three. So in that ecosystem in which we're awash with data, and we have the opportunity to know more about the planet and people than ever before. The question we have to ask is one, what, what choices do you have in that environment about data about yourself? And then two, how do we make sure in this environment that's gonna be awash in data, we can have conversations and reach some convergence about what we believe to be true versus the alternative. But we've gotta start with the data conversation. I feel like all the conversations about AI, they are so premature because if you look inside most organizations right now, their data is a mess. And so they can't even begin to embrace AI until yeah. they address the data side. It's like we're regulating cheese without regulating the milk. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Pablo, you got anything on top of that? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think David's spot on. I, I think what really keeps me up at night is with, with text with static pictures, it's relatively simple 
to show that they've been manipulated and they're not true. Yeah. It's much harder with audio and with video uh, because you really need a PhD computer scientist to come out and show you where the forensic artifacts are. And if you're inclined to believe the message, uh, you're just going to get, it's going to go over your head and you're going to go, I know what I saw and I know what I heard. Uh, and you're just trying to befuddle me with a bunch of academic speech. Uh, and so that's what really keeps me up late at night. How do we get past that? I think part of what we can do is what the internet did was great. And, and David said it earlier, is it democratized the ability to reach a mass populace. Yep. And that's, that's wonderful. Um, and in most places on the internet, you can do so anonymously and there are pros and cons to that. And in a Western society, we like to think that there are more pros than cons. And so we support that. <laughs> so what's, what's left is we need to be able to tell where a message came from. We need some sort of data provenance. Uh, and so if you see a news story on TV and it comes from, say, uh, ABC or CBS or NBC, you're probably going to believe it. If you see a news story and it comes on HBO, you're going to go, oh, no, HBO is the entertainment channel. They don't typically do the news unless it's one of their, their talk shows. Right. Or if it you know, comes on uh, the comedy channel. Right. Oh, no, this is this is coming from Saturday Night Live. It's not real news. It's a parody of the news. But it's because you know the source of it, uh, that you're able to lend it the appropriate level of of uh, kind of. Oh, my God. Truth. I was thought Dennis Miller was real news, but OK, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But no judgment. the point, Pablo, because I, I love your point, and I, but I'm also tying it back to something that David said earlier. Right. Which is the. So I, you know, we, we now are in a news cycle where it's not unheard of, like whichever you're going to turn on Fox, you're going to turn on CNN, ABC, whatever you turn on, whatever you choose to trust. Mm -hmm. They're now running with stories about a deep fake. They're now running with stories that might actually be fake and they don't even know about it because to some degree, David, what you were talking about with the yellow journalism, let's be real, some of these stations are also possibly maybe pandering for you know for ratings oh it, you're you're in an, i mean it's worth noting that remember yellow journalism one of the uh people that propagated the most in the 1890s was this individual named pulitzer which by the way it's <laughs> only a prize named after him but that's okay we keep but going. i raise that but it, and, and let's go even further back let's you know because people are acting like this is new it's worth noting the story of john adams and thomas jefferson you know here they are best of buds sign the constitution uh, and they actually choose to run for office with John Adams as the president, Thomas Jefferson as vice president. First term goes great, come up for the second term, and Thomas Jefferson decides he wants to be president. So he hires a political hitman to spread misinformation saying John Adams wants to go to war with France. What's different is now it's not just limited to a few people that are able to do that. It's that all of us can do that plus the bots. I mean, the reality right. is we're now actually the minority on the internet. I think it was 2013 when internet traffic was now 60% bots and 40% human. So, so, so in this world, uh, I think what you hit, you asked the question about news, what we may be experiencing is when you're in a for-profit news cycle that needs to show quarterly growth, don't be surprised if then you're turning to ad revenue as the way to, because no one's paying for subscriptions anymore. But what yeah, we, true. is I what did work. to your point, you know, if, if I do turn to ABC to try to figure out if something is true or not, 
and they're running the story, I'm seeing that, like, are you finding that it's even harder to try to get, to kind of pull people out of that cycle of wanting to believe what they want to believe? Oh, yes. Yeah, so there's some of that. So part of the problem is, you know, again, if you were an American in the 1980s, you had three choices for news. It was ABC, CBS, and NBC. Uh, and so you could agree with the coverage or disagree with the coverage, but when you talk to your neighbor that was maybe at the opposite side of the political spectrum, at least you saw the same story. And so you yeah, had a common yeah. point of departure. Now, if you get news uh, channels that are on opposing <laughs> ends of the political spectrum, they're not even covering the same stories. The narratives are completely different. So there's no common point for which you can have just it's civil so, discourse. It is so true. I mean, did he shake or didn't he shake? Or was that really just recycling going on in the background? But, but you see these things, right? They're happening in the back. But hey, real quick, programming note, we are here on episode 177, co-hosted with Liz Miller. I'm Ray Wong. Uh, Bala Afshar is on break today. It is our fourth anniversary show. He will be back next week. We are here with Dr. David Bray, Pablo Brewer, and more information about fakes, deep fakes. Maybe we're really not on the show. All right, so uh, talking about what's going on here. Um, so how do we protect ourselves from this, right? I mean, is there any way to protect ourselves? I mean, you're, we started talking about communities. We started talking about maybe there's some algorithms along the way, sources behind the news being trust those validated sources. Like, do we have to go back to validate like social media sources? These are officially trusted sources, but by whom and how? Like, well, how do we answer those questions? Well, I think if anything, there's a good news story here, which we are recognizing that it's always been about beliefs and stories. When people talk about truth, it really at the end of the day, it's what truth you choose to subscribe to and stories. And as Pablo mentioned in the past, we had three stations to pick from and now we have more than 3 million. Um, but I think you can look at what some countries in Europe are beginning to do, which is they are providing for different news outlets something other than just chasing ad dollars to fund what they do. Now, I realize in the United States, we're kind of skeptical of anything that smacks of using our taxes to fund the news or anything that looks like state-run enterprise, but it might be worth an experiment that says, um, you know, for example, C-SPAN. C-SPAN was actually created when this new technology called cable came out. And they said, well, maybe when you subscribe to cable, a portion of your cable subscription will actually fund C-SPAN. So at least you have an authoritarian source of what's actually going on the floor of the Congress. Maybe we need something like C-SPAN that says, look, when you subscribe to your mobile phone plan or something like that, a small percentage will go to a public pot for different news outlets. And you can actually exercise choice. You can say, pick up to five topics, nonpartisan in nature, that you would like to see more news about in the next year that your contribution will go to. And so we're, we're recognizing that the heart of the problem is advertisement dollars subsidizing news. Don't be subscribed to, surprised if that leads to ragetainment. Maybe we've got to fix this with a different economic incentive. That's, that's crazy, right? I mean, think about this, right? We've, we've got to fund something to fake, figure out the fake news that works in democratically elected governments. Imagine an authoritarian regime. How do we expose what's going on? Well, so the authoritarian regimes work because they, they have that monopoly on public information, yeah, right? They do. And so as soon as they lose that monopoly and there's uh, an alternative view that can be reached by the populace, that, that autocracy crumbles. But they've Which, choked me off at the internet, right? right? We're seeing the divergence of two internets. That internet split is happening. And some people say it's going to happen next year with China and the U.S., well, I think what you're hitting is that without a common narrative to hold together a nation, 
that nation pulls itself apart. And I would say, in some respects, we've been seeing this, the further we in the United States get away from World War II, we lose that reminder that says, look, you may differ in these things on the left or the right, but we all agree we don't want another World War II-like event to happen. Mm. And, and so in some respects, we're a victim of our own success that it's actually a fairly good time, peaceful time to be alive, even though it feels very turbulent at the moment. That's interesting. So there's, there's got to, you know, I think that, and we've, we've brought it up a couple times of there's kind of nothing on platforms. There's nothing on whether it's a social media platform, there's nothing really on the internet that is, that is that pause delay. That's that one second where it's like, we know someone's going to curse in the middle of the Super Bowl. Like, let's just wait a bit. Hit the beep button, right? There is no beep button on the, on the internet. But should there be more cooperation if we're just looking at the US for just a moment, right? Should there be more cooperation between say, you know, the Silicon Valley, the, the, the regions, whether it's, you know, whether we wanna look at Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston, like the, everywhere the nerd bird flies. Um, should there be more cooperation there and DC? Or are we just going down a path where every time, I, I know that when I start talking to people, even around recent data regulations, it's really easy to start eye rolling, right? Because how a lot of the verbiage, how a lot of it can come together feels like there are like Mack truck size holes, you know, that we're just all kind of cruising through to get around what maybe some of the intent was. Um, and everyone's language differs. Everyone's kind of going in different directions. Yep. Is what we're missing cooperation between the people who are building it and the people who are trying to give us some guide rails for it? I do think we're missing cooperation, but it's worth understanding why. Mm. I think one is, again, we don't have that burning platform that says we don't want a World War II event to happen. We, we've forgotten there's this thing called Zar uh, Bomba, which was launched in 1961, which was the largest weapon ever detonated. But if detonated today, would have all of Paris in a fireball and another 35 kilometers surrounding it as a radius completely destroyed. I mean, so we... We, we've lost that sort of, why do we need to work together anymore? And then it's a question of who? Is it with your specific country you're in? Is it with the world as a whole? Well, the trouble is the world as a whole, who do you go to? I mean, the state of world governance is at its default anarchy. Um, and so transnational corporations are probably trying to figure out what's our role relative to different nation states as the world as a whole as well. And then you've got a public that's skeptical of all the above. The public doesn't trust the government. Uh, the governments they have, they don't trust the private sector they have, and all these things are happening at an accelerating pace. I mean, everything we've talked about here, we haven't even dived into what happens when now people can actually fake your biometrics, when people can fake your DNA, when they can actually use your DNA to make personalized medicine, but also make personalized poison. This is all going to happen in the next five to eight years, and the question is, we can't approach it like how we approach things in the 70s or 80s. We've got to figure out new ways of working together and new ways of collaboration. I think that's a really good point, David, about the fact that personalized medicine could be used against you because understanding your genome means I can know exactly where your fault lines are and actually go kill you, right? right? Using something super targeted, right? In, in a way that we've never thought for, just a specific, specifically set of targeted viruses or disease pathogens um, based on your DNA profile. That Even matters. worse, if I know your DNA, I can actually sequence your DNA and sprinkle it at a crime scene. And then of course, every court's gonna say, your DNA was there. It was. Don't know how I got there, but it was there. Raised suddenly on a new 2020 episode about like 
backgrounds and stuff all of a sudden we got some crazy thing going Pablo let me let me ask you this because I I love David what you just brought up and I think it's so critical to think about the kind of how we got here you know Pablo your experience I would argue probably like gets you to goat status and security like your background (laughs) <laughs> amazing right like to say that you're an expert in this I kind of feel well quite frankly to say that you both of you are experts in this kind of makes me feel like expert isn't the right word like you guys are like at the tip of the spear on a lot of this stuff and so Pablo I want to ask you this when we start talking about how we start coordinating how we start cooperating how we start bringing all of this together what are some of you know you because you arguably worked on some of the largest orchestrations of trying to bring people into one, you know, into one space and moving all together. What are some of the things that you've seen work? You know, because I think that for a lot of companies and the things I tend to hear a lot about when people start to try to tackle this is this feels really hard. I've got to go work on my stock price or this, this feels like a a circular conversation. I can't go do this or what, what could I possibly do to change any of this conversation? But to David's point, we have to have these conversations. We have to ask these questions and we all have to figure out a way to cooperate. So Pablo, what are some of the things that you've seen in your experience get people to move from, I don't think I have to, or I don't want to, it's too hard to, okay, I'm, I'm willing to have the conversation at least. Uh, yeah, there, there's a couple of things. So there's a, the first answer is always education. Uh, and that is a deceptively difficult answer. The reason that's deceptively difficult is if we start with all of the, the children that are in, in school now, um, we're still going to have to wait another 10 to 15 years till they're adults. And we're, frankly, we're just not going to make it that long. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, there needs to be, um, we need to be able to help out industry a bit. So a lot of industry wants to do things, but they have to explain why they're doing things that may cost them money to their shareholders. Right. So we've heard Silicon Valley companies go, please regulate me so I can go back to my shareholders and explain why I'm doing these things that are going to cost me revenue. The problem is that we don't have a nonpartisan body that's going to educate our our legislators on what they're voting on. And so we end up with unfortunate circumstances where we've got uh, leaders in government asking social media, well, I don't understand how you make your money. Um, So we we really need a nonpartisan body of tech experts that can advise government on how the technology works, what the lesions are, what the dangers are, and kind of what, what some of the best practices are. What is, you know, what is the risk that we're accepting? And is it acceptable risk or is it unacceptable risk? And if it's unacceptable, what do we need to do? And then pass, pass some common sense laws uh, that industry could then point to and go, well, the government told me I have to, and that's why we're going to lose this. That's why we're no longer going to take political ads on social media because we can't, can't guarantee the truthfulness. I think the other thing that we're going to do, and I'm, I, I forget the name, so David's going to bail me out on this, is in the 90s, um, Silicon Valley was really, really successful at convincing uh, the U.S. government not to regulate it, and that they weren't media, <laughs> that they were a fledgling industry, and so the draconic laws that we had for radio and TV were just going to stifle innovation. And at the time, that may have been true, but now I I would say that most Americans get at least some portion of their news from the internet. So maybe it's time to revisit that situation and and have basic controls in there. So if I watch a political ad on TV, or if I hear one on the radio, 
by law, they must tell me who paid for that political ad. And that goes back to, uh, I know how to listen to the message because I know who paid for it. There's no such protection on the internet. And so when something comes out, I, I have no idea where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, and so some of these things are very, very basic. The other thing is, um, I, I think that uh, a marketing model needs to change uh, in the news business. Um, so sometimes uh, news organizations put out bad information, not because it's intentional, but because they made a mistake. Well, if you pick up the first page after the cover page is the retractions and corrections. Right. I, I would really like to see that for other social media. Right. right? Last, last week we reported, and, and some, you know, some uh, news organizations and news programs are really good about that. The one that comes to mind is 60 Minutes uh, does that. Yeah. Uh, I, some don't. And it, it, it's be nice to think it's because they don't make mistakes, but realistically, everybody makes mistakes. It's a, it's a human thing, even without malice. And so we have to be willing to admit. So wouldn't it be great if there was a, uh, a truth rating, right? And that's what the news organizations marketed on. Yeah. You know, it's not that we've got the most, uh, most viewers. It's that we retracted the fewest amount of stories. We were the most truthful one. And that's going to get you more viewers. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. So instead of rage tainment, you actually get news. The other part that's missing uh, is we've kind of blurred the line between news reporting and editorials. The news magazine show. There should absolutely be a label uh, that says, this is now an editorial. And you see that right. in print media. You don't see that in other yeah. media. But Anderson Cooper is not necessarily reporting here. He is actually giving you his opinion, right? It's that it's the, the delineation between that we used to have. Even even anchors used to have it. Journalists used to have it. And I think we've walked away from that a little bit, haven't we? We, we have. And so, you know, it's very, you know, and I shouldn't say it doesn't happen on any other media. Again, uh, 60 Minutes, when they had Mike Wallace at the end, that was his editorial. And it was very clear that it was his, his editorial. There was no confusing it. So being clear about yeah. what are facts... Okay, now I'm going to give you my opinion of the interpretation of those facts, I think is critical. Yeah, yeah. That background just keeps changing. And I'm, I'm feeling, I feel like Ray is just being like the deep fake in the corner. Is anyone else getting that sense? Like right up there, like right there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this this one is this one's this one's the math problem, right? I mean, if you're looking at this, right? Is that the Chihuahua or, or is that the muffin, right? This thing irks me all the time. I right? can't unsee that now. I just I can't. <laughs> it's like the gold dress one, where it's like, is it gold? Is it blue? I just, now I just want a muffin. But uh, I, I and, and I want to build on what Pablo was saying because I yeah. think he raised some very good points. The one confounding factor that we have is going back to the internet. So in the 70s and 80s, you didn't have global reach. Now you have do. Global distribution. You have global creation. Regulation, it's like, which countries' laws are you going to apply? Which states' laws are you going to apply? Are you going to end up with 50 different states with 50 different privacy acts? And so right. we've got to figure out new ways of collaborating and governing that are different than everything that came before, recognizing that we may be facing a very real situation where things that used to be done by government can't solely be done by, by government now. They have to be David, done. But David, the, 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 the Chinese government thinks they've solved everything. Right? Yes, Ray, I okay. know. You like to throw those little footballs in our way. Um, but I <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm being serious. No, they, very, they're question, saying we, though, can which is, give you, we can give you a nice, nice dictatorship country, our right. version of the internet, 
and it'll be clean. People will be happy. Yep. It'll be purposeful. Um, there won't be any fakes. We'll con you can control all the media. We'll right. let you control all the media so that you can be the censor and there'll never be any fake news. And at the same time as well, because there's no separation between the public and the private sector, they can also outperform those countries that do separate their public from their private sector and the public and the private sectors are stuck trying to have friction with each other. Yes. So I think that's, that is the motivation that says, look, that may work for some countries or they may choose to do that. But if you're from a country that does not want to embrace that future, you've got to figure out new ways of your public and your private sector, as well as your public in general working. Otherwise, those approaches will outperform. I keep coming back to that Estonia article. I'm so sorry. I just, I, cause I, so much of what you're article. saying, David, like I'm like flashing back to reading it yesterday. Like, honestly, I feel like I just needed, well, I'd go on the internet and show you guys, but now that I know that's bad, I'm going to come back to this. One of the amazing things that, that they pointed out in the article was that what made the difference in Estonia being able to really pull this off was that each individual who volunteered to be part of this kind of truth squad, you know, like I don't know what else to call it. A, they volunteered. B, they took it personally, right? And I think that that's what, like that's the common thread that you both are talking about here is that the people involved in volunteering to combat misinformation took it personally because they saw how misinformation was directly impacting their community. And it wasn't just their community like, oh, I'm gonna sit in my house and look out my window. It was their community as in my son, my daughter, their teacher, everyone I know who I talk to every day is talking about something that I know to be false and I take that personally. Like right. and, and, and as much as I love Estonia, it's a wonderful example, it's worth noting, very small country, 1.1 million totally. people. And they also have a story of people they left behind. There are 50,000 oh, yeah. Russians that are not part of that. Yeah. And so when people look at it, I'm like, that will not work for larger countries that are diverse that have, I mean, because you could see Estonia's example playing out very poorly in the United States where yeah. um, Topeka, Kansas is going to do it and San Francisco is going to do it. And I can guarantee you the, the, the versions LA's of not. that right. they reach is going to be different. Yeah. I'm an LA girl. I'm telling you right now, yeah. we're not, like, we're going to, we're bouncing out. Like we got to go. We're going to go do our own thing. <laughs> Right. But I raise that because I think that points to we've got to think beyond this and, totally. and maybe recognize what Rousseau said, which is cut your country in half and cut your country in half again and cut it in half again. But these are real thorny issues that are part of this cognitive Cold War we're in, which is we've got to recognize that it starts first with recognizing we've got to collaborate versus the alternative because otherwise things are going to end up badly. Now, that. how will we get to, Pablo, David, will we get to better cooperation between big tech and the valley? and big government in D.C. Well, first is recognizing big government in D.C. is a mess. But anyway, that's it. <laughs> Misinformation. Like we needed like a sign right there. It was like, he did it. Bring up the muffin again. Right. But it's also recognizing at the end of the day that we've got to figure out futures of governance in which it's all of us. And it's not just right. the coast, because you just mentioned the coast, Ray, and that's great. But what about the heartland? What about the fact that two years ago, 47% of all the jobs in the country were created in just the top 10 most populous areas? Yep. Just last year, it was almost 50% of all the jobs were created in the most top 10 populous areas. At the same time, we're at a 44-year low for mobility in the country. So the very places where they're seeing jobs disappear, they're not able to actually move to places where there are jobs. So yeah. unless we figure out that narrative that stitches us all back together again, um, don't be surprised if divided we fall. 
So what are you seeing happening? So 2020, there's a rumor there's an election going on. I don't know if you guys heard anything about this. Like there's stuff. Happening. I don't think Pablo and I can talk specifically about politics. No, no, no. This. One thing that I can guarantee you is come November, there will be a winner and there will be a loser. And whoever is the loser will probably be upset. And the question is, will they gracefully accept the change or will we face something different? Uh, one other thing that I'll add to that, because we talked about the autocracy uh, and what that needs to survive and what that needs to fail. Democracy needs something else to thrive. Uh, democracies have to believe in the legitimacy of the rulers. They have to understand and believe the way in which their government works. Uh, and if they don't believe in those things, that democracy fails because they don't feel that, like they're being represented. 100%. Uh, and, and so what we really need uh, is for whoever wins and for whoever loses to agree that who won and who lost uh, and, and do the right thing. Um, it's very easy if you lose to find a detail that's not quite right or suspect and, and focus in on that. Right. Um, here's what I will say. Uh, there, there's, that, that gives me a little bit of hope. There's no other country on earth that's done what the United States has done, which is for a couple hundred years, pass power from one administration to the other one without a war. Uh, and, and there's no other country that can really say that. Uh, and, and so I, I think we can pull it together. Uh, I think the fact that uh, now it's not just government people and think tank people that are discussing these things. The fact that uh, misinformation is being covered in the news and on the internet and on podcasts like this and in panels, uh, I think more Americans are aware of it. I think more Americans are discussing it. And I think that's going to lead to, with time, a little healthy skepticism. Uh, and that's what we need is a little healthy skepticism where people on polar opposite ends of the spectrum can get together and go, did you see that? Yeah, it, it kind of looked a little uh, emotionally charged to me. Yeah, it looked emotionally charged to me. Maybe the truth is somewhere to the left or to the right of that. Yeah. Uh, and then we get back to civil discourse. I'm going to go and, ahead and, and reward you and David saying that. Pablo was saying, I'll give you first a very real possibility that I think we need to start thinking about now, which is we know there's this uh, coronavirus going on. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going to be contained, so it's probably going to unfortunately spread throughout the planet. The good news is it looks like the mortality rate is fairly low. But if that coronavirus hits the United States and hits its peak around the October, November, and December time period, do we need to be ready for someone saying certain people weren't able to go to the polls because of the disease outbreak because we have disparities in our healthcare system here? I think we should start thinking about that now. And we should think about other things that could actually be used as wedge issues to divide whatever comes out of November. Mm. Now, on a optimistic note, I will say this, which is Rousseau actually said what made democracies corrupt is they didn't also think about the good of the community. And I think, Liz, what you've been saying and everything like that, what you really want is a plurality, which is all the hallmarks of what makes a democracy a representative form of government work but also people that think beyond their own self-interest, beyond their own self-happiness, but also the good of the community. The question that I have, and, and maybe we can talk more at CCE and things like that is, what can be done to motivate people to think beyond their self-interest, beyond their own profit lines, to thinking about the good of the community as a whole? And I'm just gonna record the both of you guys so that like at next Thanksgiving dinner, I can just be like, 
stop, think, healthy skepticism, <laughs> hit the pause button because it's, uh, you know, it, it, it is, uh, you, you, that's when you tend to hear it all, right? Like when you hear what everyone else is thinking and what everyone else who might not be in technology, who might not, I think we probably, all four of us think about it differently because we are kind of in the tech security government bubble. Um, but man, it's amazing what my mom thinks is happening out there. So sometimes I'm just going to have my, my Pablo and David button and I'm just going to be like, boop, <laughs> boop, pause, yep. listen, what's happening? One of the things you can do is, is uh, not just that, it's uh, uh, show them the opposite view, the exact opposite narrative right. from another news source and go, how do you know which one of these is true? Um, my favorite is to actually show them Al Jazeera because it just really messes with their heads. And I just, <laughs> yes, I actually. I just, and, and it's exceptional journalism. So yes. I'm like, let me show you this front page. Well, and I think the other thing is, is it gets to what President Lincoln said, which is I do not like that person. I must get to know them better. How many of us in today's polarized and charged era are embodying that second statement of I must get to know them better? It's like we're going back to the relationship age and I kind of dig it. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, if that's the outcome of all of these hard conversations we're gonna have to have, that we're actually getting back to relationships and actually getting back to a point where we can stop and be like, I'm gonna, I wanna learn more about that. I'm not gonna, not gonna lie, kinda, kinda like it. Yeah. You know, so, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking that, you know, if we're gonna fight these battles and I actually think these are bigger battles of, decentralization versus centralization. Um, the way we actually think about um, open societies versus closed societies, right? I, I think we will have to come up with a framework uh, to think about how that framework is. Um, I really hope there are think tanks uh, that are working on this problem, right? We know there's teams, yeah. um, you know. I don't know of uh, any uh, um, stay tuned for mid-March for a big more public announcement, but there might be a think uh, yeah. tank or two out there. Might be there. a think tank working on this somewhere in D.C. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and we hope to engage our West Coast partners as well as our Heartland partners. So, so we, we, don't, we don't shout that we're from D.C., but um, I, yeah, I, I 100%. I think, and this is where I tell people, we're in the middle of a new cognitive Cold War, um, and that it's worth noting the history of the Atlantic Council. We were created in 1961 when the Democrats from the Truman administration and the Republicans from the Eisenhower administration were so busy fighting amongst each other, they weren't focusing on winning this thing called the Cold War, specifically to make sure societies remain open and markets remain open. And here we are 59 years later, and maybe we need to do it again. Oh my God, you've heard the last word. No, hopefully, no, this is not the last word on this. No, 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 no like this is the first <laughs> mark of Disrupt TV. We'll I heard that David is gonna solve all of this. That's what I heard. <laughs> Right. He is. Actually, all four of the boxes you see on your screen right now, and it's been one giant deep fake. I feel like a puppet. How did that happen? <laughs> We're live here, episode 177, Disrupt TV, with Pablo Brewer, Dr. David Bray, co-host Liz Miller. And, uh, you know, this has been very, very fun, really talking about a really important issue for the next decade. It's one that we've highlighted on the Constant Ways from Research page, a world of deep fakes versus authenticity. Where's that going to take us? Um, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, Thanks guys. You're awesome. Thanks for having Four us. Four years from now, you got to do us as holograms. <laughs> I'll keep putting up that blueberry muffin background. <laughs> All right. We are going to have episode 178 coming up, right? And our Unreal. list of guests, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be Raj Rao, general manager for IBM Food Trust, 
Carolyn Criado Perez, author of Invisible Women, Exposing, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And of course, one of our favorites, Ron Miller, enterprise reporter at TechCrunch. Now some quick programming notes, and then Liz, a little comment on your end on what's up on your end, but quick programming notes, our fourth anniversary show. We started February 5th. 2016, and our guests at that point were Whitney Johnson, Brian Fanzo, and Chris Canarakis. And since then, we've had 383 unique guests, and you can still catch us on Vimeo, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, coast to coast on radio. So final thoughts, final words, Liz, what do you think? Where are we getting all this? We're going to come back to this issue sometime again soon. I, you know, I think so. I think this is going to be this is going to be the issue that we keep talking about throughout the whole decade because it's going to keep changing. And every time we come up with the new way to engage and a new way to communicate with each other, it's just going to add another layer to this onion. We're just going to have to keep pulling it back. And I think it's really interesting because it's where my worlds collide, right, Ray? Where it's like it's like the world of security and the world of marketing engagement are about to like crush. And what do you just, call that? What do you call that? You know what, I call it brand security. Like I, I just, I, I think you have to meet in the middle. And I think that we're starting to see a world in which trust is kind of going down, right? Our consumers don't trust us anymore because we keep having really bad engagements. Like we- Oh, it's horrible. Retargeting, like stop stalking me with that pair of shoes. I don't, I told you I didn't want to hear from you, but now you're pinging me on social, but I didn't want you to call me. You know, we've, we've ignored permissions, we've ignored privacy, and now we're in a point where bad actors can take advantage of it. So we've got to figure out a way, I think what David and Pablo were saying, how do we find a way for Silicon Valley and DC to work together? But quite frankly, and I'm thinking, hey, everyone who watched this, if you're a marketer, do me a favor. Think about one way you can work with your CIO or your CISO better next week, starting on Monday, so that we can actually start building trust back up with our customers. And that's going to see our revenues go up and we're going to see all sorts of fun stuff. But that's where my head goes. That's what keeps me up at night. What about you, Ray? What's up with you? Oh, I'm, I'm just basically in shock, right, by how easy it is for these fakes to create so much chaos in the world. Yeah. I work with a guy that um, you know, his job is to ensure that his large social media platform um, doesn't incite riots, create violences, and, uh, have civil wars. I mean, there's a whole team dedicated. There's hundreds of people at this company doing that. I won't name the company, but it's crazy, right? That something would have to come down to it. Hey, anyways, welcome to Disrupt TV. Happy Friday. Uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. live tapings Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, almost every Friday. So thanks a lot. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, thanks for being here, Liz. Thanks for being here, Liz. Ask for Vala. Ask for Vala.